Hello and welcome to another episode of Tree Lady Talks, the ninth in this first season. Today, I'm very glad to say that music, art and literature are poking their noses in. And uh, we have two doctors, one artist and one lady from Prague, indeed, uh, who Sharon is going to explain all about. Um, But first of all, Dr. James Canton. Sharon, tell us about James. James is a wild writer and author and presenter And James wrote a book called The Oak Papers, which was published this year and featured recently in BBC Four's Book of the Week. This is really a deeply personal and evocative journey of getting to know one particular oak tree and what he learned and the people he met as he discovered more about how oaks shape our lives and our connection with them. And talking about getting to know one oak tree, how about artist Stephen Taylor? Well, Stephen Taylor painted the same oak tree in Essex over three years at different times of day and at different times of year with long distance views and close up studies. And it's all in the most beautiful book called Oak. Fantastic book. We've got a link to that on the website. Certainly want to check that out. It's absolutely magnificent pictures. Following that, we've uh, got Dr. Gabriel Hemery. A multi-talented gentleman who's a silviculturalist, a published author. Published author? I should say he's a published author. He's done 95 academic papers. He has. But what we're talking about today is his work of fiction, his second fictional book. And this one's called Tall Tree Short Stories. And I was blown away by how different each story was. And... There's even a little bit of singing. A little bit of singing. He does. He, yeah, he does do a little bit of singing. I do a little bit of piano playing too. I couldn't resist it. And after Gabriel is Irina Antonez from France. Irina has produced the most beautiful website as an educational resource for people to make that connection between how our body functions and how a tree functions. It's very beautiful it's very simple and the idea is to get us all connected with nature but I'm just so pleased to do this podcast because we so often have talked about the detail and technical matters but this really highlights the importance of how art literature and music can drive home the environmental message to a wider audience it's been great just goes to show that trees get everywhere, so I think we should find out where trees get in terms of music, art and literature. This week I, I might I might play a little tune actually. I've still got some of the band members from last week, a bit of overspill. So there's a couple of a couple of them still sitting in here waiting to get paid. Um <laughs> So if if you don't mind, I'll, shall I shall I sort of crack away? Oh I'd love that. Okay, let's go then. Thank you. 
Hello, this is Sharon Durden Hollenby, and you're listening to Tree Lady Talks. All music and production is by Noel Durden Hollenby, and all views expressed by me or the interviewee are our own. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. James Canton. We really appreciate it. Very welcome, Sharon. Nice to be here. Thank you. Well, tell us a bit about your background to start with. I kind of come to um, to trees, if you like, uh, through through a route that starts. I mean, I started studying geology at university, so I'm, I'm a bit of a kind of uh, I've worked my way around many subjects. I ended up doing a, a degree in psychology. I've got a PhD in in literature. It, uh, basically focusing on uh, specialising in, in travel writing, uh, particularly British travel writing in Arabia, uh, which came out of an, an interest of mine. I travelled a lot in the, in the Near East, lived in Egypt, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, through that, essentially started working at the University of Essex, teaching a master's course in wild writing that had just been inaugurated in 2009, um, by my my old PhD tutor Peter Hume, a bit of a legend within travel writing, certainly, and he co- um, kind of collaborated with the biological sciences department under uh, Jules Pretty, Professor Jules Pretty, and they'd seen this this need for a kind of genuinely interdisciplinary approach to to, if you like, uh, what what we subtitled literature, landscape, and the environment. You're a published author. You've you've written several books. Yeah. And the one that we're going to concentrate on today was published on the 30th of July this year, The Oak Papers. But before we talk about that, last week I saw an article that you wrote in The Guardian. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I was very, very, uh, very pleased to see that. I thought they they produced it beautifully. I was asked if I if I'd like to write a, a piece for the travel section. Uh, by their their excellent editor Jane Dunton. It was on yes, yeah, so it was on ancient woodlands. I had this lovely moment where I could choose my top five ancient woodlands in Britain to kind of highlight to the Guardian readership, which was really it was. It took a while, like I you know I genuinely kind of kind of took a while over it and tried to get a little bit of a scope across across our archipelago as much as anything. Yeah. How wonderful. And for those listening abroad, The Guardian is is one of the main newspapers here in the UK. And also the Oak Papers itself has has been serialised on BBC Radio 4's Book of the Week as well. So people can probably catch up with that within the UK on iPlayer as well. But um, that's great. So I'm going to to talk about the book, really. I, I found it really, really beautiful and calming. So the way that the book made me feel, interestingly, is how you felt when you were near the oak. Could you perhaps tell the listeners about your journey and your experience of this individual tree and, and what this tree is like physically as well? So the, the book uh, began back in, in 2012, um, so quite a long time ago, and I was working down the road from from the Honeywood Oak, which is the kind of hero of the book, if you like, the sort of central character, this 800-year-old oak tree. Um, And I was working down the road from from the Honeywood Oak uh, in a secondary school teaching English. And I decided one day simply to go and visit the Honeywood Oak on the way home. And um, 
and genuinely that that then began what became eventually the narrative that was published uh you know a couple of months ago as the oak papers so it, it's it's you know it's it's been a long process it's not a particularly big book in the end but um but yeah i think hopefully the the book that it, that we've published um gets across some of the complexity um and some of the meditative moments that i was able to have next to this 800 year old oak tree and it's it's so an 800 year old oak tree it's an english oak on a small english country estate it's an estate that's open to the public isn't it it's a marks hall estate in essex and it's it's really beautiful it's got a, a really lovely arboretum and some wallaby pines as well i think it was the first place in the uk to have those yeah it's quite, i didn't know that yeah i mean they have they have an incredible arboretum as you say and they're, they're they were hugely supportive I, I really must say that right from the beginning they're then a uh, curator of trees uh, jonathan dukes was uh, which was hugely understanding um this this strange man ringing him up and saying hello can i come and sit next to your 800 year old oak tree i want to do it at day and night i want to come at all different weathers through the seasons and he he immediately understood he understood what i was what i was after he's he's a very much you know a lover of trees uh, an appreciator of of trees himself and he's now moved on working with Woodland Trust. So essentially, it became a project, if you like. But I mean, that's slightly too grand. I mean, I would literally go there backwards and forwards on the way, the odd hour, the odd couple of hours. And I'd just sit next to this tree. And I'm not a naturalist by training. But, you know, as I say, my training is more in the literature and the culture of, of if, if anything, and uh, so I spent quite a lot of time sitting on a bench beside the oak, observing. Uh, you know, obviously I'd, I knew Gilbert White, I knew people like him and the way that he had kind of observed the natural world. And I was in, in some sense mimicking that. I, I kind of, I wanted to, there to be a sense of, of time over this. Um, and it was amazing, you know, going to, having this, this uh, capacity to step into this beautiful, small country estate uh, you know on my own at night um and just sit by this oak tree you know as the sun set and everything all the noises came up from the the creatures around and then and then you know uh, in, uh, through the night you know dawn and jonathan arranged for me to be hoisted up into the oak it really comes across in the book and I get the impression this might be rather fanciful but you were drawn to it and i wondered if you had a subconscious need and the longer you spent under the tree at all times in all seasons and you really became increasingly conscious not only of its how it looked its ecology its sense of history and, and some sense of power that really led you on a bit of an exploration of what oaks mean to us throughout this book and and people that you discussed it, have i interpreted that correctly no, that's 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 perfectly done. I mean, that's you know, I don't want anyone to get the sense that I, I had this plan in mind when I first went. You know, it was it was it was a genuine sense. I wanted to, I genuinely wanted to to get to know 
the ecology effectively of of oak trees and i had a fantastic time initially trying to get to know kind of like stiletto flies and you know some of the creatures that lived in the heart rot you know and this this kind of process which for me was fascinating it's just fascinating uh but as you say as time went on i I realized more and more um the the delight the, the the genuine sense of wonder and peace that I was experiencing simply by going and, and sitting there and simply by um, observing this, this tree. And, and, you know, and then I, I spent a lot of time in the British Library researching uh, the nature of, of the relationship between humans and oaks, um, both in Britain, where we feel we have a kind of special connection to oaks, but, but also through history. Uh, you know, my, my last book had been very much about prehistory, about British prehistory. I'm very much drawn to linkages between our current living and those that came before. And one of the truths that I discovered in my kind of uh, delving into oak law was this idea that the that the earliest farmers across the globe, wherever oaks had had grown and grow, um, the earliest farmers were were enabled to survive. Um, during during kind of poor harvests as they were trying to get crops growing by the the crops of acorns Um, and that um, you know we've got evidence of kind of archaeological finds where great pits of of prepared acorns have been found where they've been kind of split and hulled and and kind of washed of their tannins to a certain extent um, by neolithic peoples Um, and so I kind of started to recognize that there was this depth to the, to the connection between humans and oak trees. And that the more, the more I kind of started um, spending time researching this, uh, it became clear. You, you think of uh, some of the great writers of antiquity, they were also referencing this, this kind of reverence, this connection to oak trees. You know, the Greek writers, even right back to Homer, Odysseus, before he returns to Ithaca, you know, he, he goes and consults the temple at, at Dodona and he goes and, and listens to the whisperings, the susurrations of the oak leaves. And they tell him to go back, sail home. In fact, um, in part of the book, um, near the end, you, I really like the bit where you're actually not going to the Honeywood Oak at that time. You, you've moved on to what you call Field Oak, which is nearer to where you live. And one early morning, you see a mystical creature and you wonder if you've seen it for real or not, but you notice that a dog was barking nearby. And whether or not you saw something or not, it got me thinking about our strong tradition of folklore and fairy tales and how they are a basis for a lot of childhood stories and some of those were originally quite dark but do you think those folklore are still relevant in today's modern world yeah i really do i mean look i'm i do as well i mean i'm from i'm from the city i'm from london yeah so i'm not a proper country boy uh, i've lived out in in rural essex for the last uh 20 odd years you know where i live this little village it has has no shop it has no pub it has a church and it has a curry house on the very edge of the village um it's very rural and and one of the things i recognized when i was researching for my, for my last book was this was this division of language that we talk about the civilized and and the pagan 
And these are just, these are Latinized terms that we've inherited from the Romans, and they simply mean people of the city and people yes. of the countryside. And and we've kind of, you know, we've we've put lots of kind of um, flavorings around them, if you like. Um, but I, you know, if you like, I come from the city, and I have I've decided to live in the countryside. And that makes me pagan. There is no uh, other other layering to it. If I'm going to use those terms, I was civilized. I'm now pagan. I really like that. I think we should reclaim that word yeah. because, as you say, people have got a completely different flavor of what that means. And I've always been a pagan, and always will be. Sure, sure. But this then this then does impact, as you say, I think to a certain extent with our with cultural belief systems, and and very yes. much in the countryside, there you know the tales of. Of fairies and imps, etc. Um, you know, they are bound. And like genuinely, I, you know, that that incident uh where I was standing in in the field just behind this little cottage here, I saw this this flashing figure. It was early dawn, it was in that kind of grainy light where you're 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 not quite sure about things. In the same sense, you can sometimes see a deer or something like that. And I saw this figure go past and and I genuinely, like I, you know, I recorded it uh, in the book. Um, there was a sense in which I, I wasn't quite sure what it was, and I did try and go and find it. And and I, yes, at the time I had been reading um, these incredible accounts of, you know, uh, I mean the the account of the green children of, of Woolpit, for example. That I don't know if people have heard. Well, I, I have, but perhaps you could explain that. It's written down um, by Ralph of Coggeshall. Um, 13th century account, written account, and he talks about these these two green children, as they were called, that were discovered um, on the edges of of the village of what's now known as Woolpit um, in in North, in North Suffolk. And um, it, it's an incredible account because you read it and you kind of think, well, hold on, this is a this is a very educated man who's writing this this tale of you know these children that were apparently found there, and they are green and and they come from another world according to uh, what they say, and they speak in a different language. And they suddenly just turned up on the edge of this village. And uh, and it's just a beautiful piece of, if you like, folkloric uh, account, uh, in the same sense that you, you have these uh, stories of, of you know, fairies like Puck or... Um, these ver- these various figures that that in- inhabit the the countryside, and uh, you know Shakespeare's the, the the go-to person in a lot of way for for the kind of general way in which we now would think of of these uh, depictions, these literary depictions of these figures. But uh, but you can go to lots of other writers who who very much um, would see them as part and parcel of, of the of the landscape, if you like. And talking about the power of stories, I always think names are very powerful. So um, I personally think it's really evocative when a tree is named. It actually gives it more power. Yes. And so in my work, I sometimes do very large surveys and sometimes they include very important trees, um, historically, culturally, ecologically. And if they don't already have a name, I give them a name. And the reason why I give them a name is so that people in the design team, I say, that is a stonking great oak, for example. And then it immediately lodges in someone's mind. And I really would like people who work with trees to name them more. Yeah. So that I think it's quite a powerful tool. I think I think you're right. And particularly if we're trying to engage other people with with trees, you know, the sense of of being able to kind of identify it 
the personality, the individuality of, of a tree was something that I really came across during, during my time of sitting next to the Honeywood Oak and reading various people, Martin Buber, the, the philosopher particularly, I think, who really opened my eyes to the idea that every tree is an individual living creature. You know, it's a living being. And that everyone is different in the same sense that every human is a different living creature, being. Um, you know, nothing startling in that. Nothing startling in that. And every tree is an individual. But also you write about the fact that trees need to be connected to each other. Sure, yeah. The fact that um, they, they're not really meant to be isolated. And the Honeywood Oak itself is a remnant of a much larger ancient woodland that was or actually bought pasture that was felled, wasn't it, at the turn of the last century? Yes, that's right. So this, so this is part of the of the narrative of the Honeywood Oak. It's an 800-year-old tree. And as you say, um, on about, the, 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 I think the first time that I met up with Jonathan, um, he told me this, this incredible story that up until the 1950s, um, there'd been around 300 other oaks of, you know, approximately the same age. You know, this, this, this huge medieval deer park um, of oaks Unfortunately, 300 of those oaks had been cut down purely, you know, for the money uh, in, the, in the late 50s and 60s. And, uh, you know, just this, the poignancy of, of standing there next to this, this one remaining. I mean, there's, there's two or three other ones within the, the Marksville estate, um, other oaks, that is, that, that did manage to, to avoid being felled. But the Honeywood oak is the only one really of that substance from that time. And, 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 it, and you, you know, the point is here, you start to add up, you know, the, the thousands and thousands of, of creatures that, that would have been supported by such ancient woodland and, you know, but then, you know, and, and I realized as I started to write the Oak Papers that this was, this was one of the stories that needed to be kind of made, made plain, you know, and that, and then the, the, the difficulty is we, we might, then sort of look back and say, well, you know, oh, why did they do that then 60 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, the truth is, unfortunately, that our grandchildren are going to look back at our time and say, well, why on earth, what on earth were they doing? You know, whether it's climate change, whether it's HS2, whether it's, you know, we're still doing it. We're still doing it. We still haven't learned that you can't be just chopping down ancient trees because they take hundreds of years to regrow. They are irreplaceable. They are mini ecosystems. And actually, one of the oaks that's left at the Markswall Estate, and we'll put a picture on our website of the Honeywood Oak, and the other oak, which I want to mention, is called the Screaming Oak. Yeah, yeah. You must know the Screaming Oak. And um, so for listeners, do look at our website. You'll see this startling oak tree that looks like it's screaming, perhaps for the loss of its brothers and sisters. You also write so well about the psychological effect of touching the tree. Did this surprise you? You started, as the book goes on, in this meditative, poetical style, the, the tree draws you in to be far more um, emotional. It's a, much, it's a much more almost spiritual experience, and you're carried away with that. And and did you expect that when you first started sitting under this tree? Uh, no, uh, quite frankly, uh, I really didn't. I mean, I, I went, you know, as I say, I went to the to the oak, really to to kind of extend my knowledge of the natural world, 
um, not even particularly to do with oaks, you know, to be honest. It was just, it was just like, I thought this, this, this would be really good. This would be a good thing. I'll get to know. It was more to do with getting to know a little bit more about, you know, bugs and beetles and spiders and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, because I was teaching this course in wild writing, which, okay, I was the, I was the, the specialist in the literature side, but I was, you know, I was kind of interested in, in the natural world. Genuinely, um, I was recognizing that the, the impact that being in this in this beautiful green space by this tree was having um on me in, in a very positive way and then uh, over the years you know it was uh, it was a number of years that i was kind of going and being by the honeywood oak and then uh you know as my jobs changed and i you know i went through a kind of breakup of a relationship um you know and i was i was having a tough time in 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 some ways and i and i realized that that there are oaks all around us there are lovely trees that we can go to um and so I would just start walking to a, a couple of what I call two oak hill. One of the oaks has got a perfect kind of branch ladder for just going and climbing into. And I'd just go and climb into this oak and just sit. Not particularly high, you know, I'm not, I'm not great on, on my tree climbing, but uh, I'd recommend, I mean, it's a funny thing to do as an adult, as a grown-up adult, yeah. you know, husband, father, you know, whatever. But uh, um, it's a good thing to do. It makes no, it is. you it a is. child again. You know? Well, I, I totally agree that we all need to play more, especially now. Yeah. Playing is very, very freeing and really, really essential in these dark times. I mean, I really got the sense um, the first part of the book is seeing the oak and the next part of the book is knowing the oak. And I felt in some way you'd been healed when you said I, I stopped going to the Honeywood Oak for a while and explored the oaks nearby. And I thought that was really lovely, actually. So throughout the book, you start to really want to understand more, as you've explained about the relationship between the oaks and humans and all aspects of that. And then the, the book is interwoven with wonderful local people that you meet who work with trees. Sure. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And and I think, uh, you know, it would, it would have been a, a much drier book if it had just been my reflections, my continual reflections uh, on on my process and my diary entries. And, and there were, I just, you know, I'd meet, folk that have been around that have seen these trees for for a lot longer than I have and they've kind of thought these thoughts that I was having you know many many years ago and so yeah there were some wonderful people I mean uh Stephen Westover that we've that we've talked about yes. uh who's you know a bit of a legend around here he's a total legend Chris and, and Jude Gibson as well Chris is a is a, a very well-known naturalist around these parts Essex naturalist he was brilliant at kind of just guiding me in some of the aspects of, of the oak you know I just wanted to check up on him about you know I wasn't an expert he is an expert um, and then there were there were people like there was someone like uh, Dylan Pym who people might not know he's a furniture designer really um, he, he uh, steam bends oak uh, in order to, to create just the most amazing bits of wood um but he's also absolutely passionate and a very kind of spiritual figure in terms of, of, of trees and he was brilliant again at just telling his tales of oak trees as well i mean stephen taylor who you've, you know you've... yes well stephen taylor's on this podcast as well and i've spoken to him earlier today and oh it's so fascinating to hear about you know repeatedly painting the same tree and and for me there's a parallel between your work and his in that you both spent a long time with the same tree and, and actually you both had different experiences 
you know, Stephen, a couple of a couple of people independently said, oh, do you know Stephen Taylor? You know, uh, one of his old, old students, uh, Matt Mackman, who's a good friend of mine, had kind of guided me that way. And I'd already kind of got a copy of the book uh, that he wrote, Oak, about his experience of, of these of painting this this same tree, as you say, over sort of uh, three years or so. And uh, and Chris Gibson is, a, is an old friend of Stephen as well. So there, as you get amongst the as you very well know, that the tree communities, people people do connect up. Definitely, definitely. And it's so important at the moment. I wondered if you could please read an extract from your book. Yeah, sure, sure. I'd love to. I'd love to. Um I've got the, I've got this little piece. It's not it's not too long, but and it's from fairly early on in in a little section called Beginnings, right at the beginning of the book. And I, I just uh, for those people that you know might not have read the book, it's a kind of uh, a kind of guide in, I think. Wherever oak trees grow around the globe, people have developed a connection to them. Throughout human history, particular oaks have been favoured for their setting, for their age and size. Ancient oaks have always been special. People collect beneath their boughs. They may gather there as a place of significance within the landscape or merely as somewhere to shelter. Whereas we humans are creatures of movement, oaks are static beings. They do not shift. They are born and they die on the same patch of earth. It is that sure-footedness that is so appealing. Ancient oaks hold a powerful sense of longevity, the sense of security, the sense of attachment to a place across time enchants us. We are drawn to old oaks. You can stand beneath a grand oak and know that your more distant ancestors did so too. Oaks hold on to the memories of earlier generations. By touching the skin of the oak, it is possible to feel some tentative trace of those that have gone before. Human beings and oaks have lived beside one another as neighbours since the earliest times, and we continue to do so. We no longer need the bodies of oak trees to build our homes or to fuel our fires, and we no longer need acorns to sustain us through hard years and meagre harvests. Yet on some level, we still lean on oak trees in ways we do not fully understand. We need them. Thank you. It's so beautiful. I mean, I recommend anybody who's having a terrible time locked down with COVID right now, perhaps people who are, shall we say, civilised, um, living in an urban environment, in a flat, who really feel that they need to stretch and breathe to read the oak papers because it really, I found it a very spiritual book and a very calming one. And I've, I think we're in a, a, also an unprecedented time, not only with the global pandemic, but also with climate change, which is accelerating. And I think you know, getting messages across to people to appreciate the natural world. And I wonder if you had a real sense of responsibility or duty or privilege even of, of writing and how that might shape how people feel. Yeah, well, thanks, Sharon. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think it's uh, it's very difficult 
um, if you like, to write about the natural world without referencing climate change. I don't think it's entirely possible. Um, in writing this book, the way that I wanted to frame that aspect, uh, climate change, the destruction of the natural world by humans, I, I didn't want it to just be like shoved in people's faces. I needed it to be more subtly referenced. I needed this to be, if you like, a, a, um, an uplifting story, a reminding narrative of humans and oak trees, you know, because that's what it had been for me. Over the years, I'd realised, I'd learned that we have this. I didn't make this up. This is through research, you know. I mean, it's like it wasn't a story, if you like. Um, um, but, yeah, so to that extent, and I think it's very interesting, the ways in which people are trying to um, engage humanity, you know, people with climate change. Sometimes we need to be shocked other times we need to be reminded of our connection with the natural world. We are of nature. We are of the natural world. You know, we are creatures living on this earth as trees are, as insects are, etc. That important connection, it, it needs to be made. I mean, I, I make the odd dark message in, in the book as well. I didn't feel it was my case to be making some strong polemic about what we need to do because I'm not a climate change scientist. As much as possible, I'm I'm trying to keep the message out to people that we that we need to to engage with the natural world, that we need to recognize its importance for us, if you like, but for all the other creatures that we share this globe with. You know, that's it's not rocket science, is it? But also the impact it has on our on our well-being, as, as you so well put it, that uh, that we all are starting to realise through a lot of fantastic research, part of which I include in this book. You know, interviews with with an environmental um, psychologist who you know talked us through some of the studies that have taken place, showing through EEG patterns in people's brains that when we are in green places, when we are in green spaces, when we are next to oak trees, we are happier, we are calmer, we are more peaceful. I really like the sense in the book that when you first started going to the tree, you were innocent of any preconceptions. You were just going there because you were interested in the creepy crawlies. You know, you wanted to learn more about that. And we, we follow you on your personal journey through the love story of that tree. So thank you so much. It's been an absolute privilege to speak to you. A book I love and highly recommend well, thanks. the Oak Papers. That's really Thank fun. you. Thank you. Lovely to speak to you. Welcome to Stephen Taylor, who's an artist. Stephen, it's so lovely to have you join us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Nice to see you. Well, this is the first time we've interviewed an artist, which is a very visual medium. We're going to have some of your beautiful artwork on our website for people to view and link to your website as well, which will help the listener as we go through this talk. But Stephen, tell us a bit about your background, please. Uh, well, I started life as um, an art historian at university um, and started lecturing at various art schools. Uh, but my first job was a resident artist at a boarding school. So I was kind of lucky, really. Um, I had um, two and a half years with a free studio and not much teaching time. I don't know if that still happens, but I was lucky. And I had a show at the end of that um, and everything pretty much sold. Um, so I put it to one side, really, and just got on with lecturing and doing a postgrad on Constable. 
And that went on for years. Uh, and then I had a kind of uh, life change, middle, middle of my life. I thought, well, I've done quite a lot of lecturing now and worked in art schools for a long time. And uh, I want to see whether I can sell paintings, A, for more money, and B, more for myself, both at the same time, if I could. And of course, to do it seriously, it takes a lot of time. So I sort of pulled in my horns and started to paint almost full time. I just kept a few, one or two little teaching jobs. And the first sort of big show I did, I have, I've had a lot of shows all through my life, but uh, the first big show I did was at King's College in Cambridge, and that was just of one field. So that was my, I regard that as my first professional show. I suppose I was a jobbing painter for many years. That was my idea, um, that I could just paint different things for different people and, and rather enjoy it just sort of get on and meet different people. But in the long run, I felt I wasn't that happy with it. I mean, I enjoyed the life. What I wanted to do was really buckle down and produce something about one particular place. So I, I settled on this field in Essex. <laughs> yes, I, I, I don't know if I know the actual tree, but this is an area where I grew up. Yeah. And I first heard about your book, which is just called Oak about a single tree in the village in northwest Essex where my parents now live. What inspired you to work in this particular field in northwest Essex? Several things, really. I think the first thing was I knew the owners. And so I got a long, leisured look at it, you know, day after day after day. Um, but I walked around the whole farm. It was 800 acres. And I think that it really, it was an opportunity, really, to paint in a relaxed way exactly what I want because I could go anywhere and I got an okay with the farm manager who was a, a lovely guy called Bill um, and he was kind of interested in what I did I rather liked that connection that the people who were working on the farm were interested in me painting it and um, wherever I go I quite like that if there's someone local especially with local knowledge and they take an interest in it that really does help me because they'll point things out and you can sort of build up your knowledge background um, with local knowledge and so that was that was very nice but the particular field well it slopes down to a tiny little stream and it's just you know how shallow the hills are in Essex but it's it's on the t a little brow so you're looking across the whole field um, and the sun came up in the east and it sets in the west on either side of you so it was really like a kind of theatre almost you could see everything so I rather like it made me feel that um, I could see all I needed there wasn't really anything concealed and I rather liked at the time I rather liked that idea that you could make a painting out of them um, you know a continuous landscape all of which that you could see and I've been told subsequently that there's an ancient sort of thing going on maybe that you know you, you put your cave when you're a caveman halfway up the hill so you can see everything so it's a kind of a refuge and uh, so you can see anybody coming all that sort of thing it felt like this particular field my little spot in the end it felt like an outdoor studio because I went there so often the subject of many of your paintings is one particular oak tree so could you describe the oak tree to us first of all I think it's important to understand that I painted it as part of the field for three or four years without thinking of it being a subject at all. So I was interested in the whole field and there happened to be this oak tree. There were about eight oak trees around this one field. 
Um, and then when I finished a little show about the field, I then came back to paint, I thought, just a single object, but I wasn't quite sure what. So to answer your question, I settled down in the field um, for a summer, you know, talking to Bill and just idling about really for a little while, making drawings of lots of trees um, and little corners and things and photographs. I used a lot of photographs as well. I was taking photographs as well as drawings and even doing voice recordings, like making little remarks about things. Apparently, like Coleridge and Wordsworth used to do, they used to write lines of poetry outdoors, oh, I didn't just know kind of sort of sketch notes, but yeah. uh, verbal sketches, oh, and then work them place. up and build them in. Yeah, yeah, and I knew that. So I was kind of interested in, in getting more than one sense into it. Yeah. Cut a long story short, um, the one oak tree that I chose, it's kind of an interesting one because it was, um, it faced the sun and I was facing it. So you never really saw the heavy shade side. And when the sun went across it, it just changed the sculpture of the surface of it slightly, um, but it was quite stable. In, in other words, you could, the lighting at 11 o'clock was not a million miles from the lighting at one o'clock. So that gave you quite a run through for a painter. Two hours is quite a big bite for a landscape painter before you know, have to think again. And so it faced you, so that, that was good. But the other thing is it had a kind of um, slightly emblematic shape, I now think. I didn't think of that at the time. It does, yes. It's very centralised and it's a little bit like a pub sign. Yes, it, it is a classic <laughs> oak tree shape. Yeah, yeah. And I think I quite liked that just because it may have that shape. The minute you get close to it, it's like any natural object. It just kind of mm. collapses. It's so complex. So I think what I liked about it was because it had a simple shape, it ena enabled you to sort of get at these um, sort of crazy anarchic twigs and leaves and bits and pieces that you get that you can't see at all, really. You can't foresee the shape of broken twigs. You know, try and imagine, you can't, it's not possible. And I, that's what stimulates me as a painter, getting to grips with things that you don't know. So I think the familiar shape was a way of kind of grounding all that. It almost gave you the freedom to explore those smaller details rather than being tied up in the um, an asymmetric crown or something peculiar, a visually peculiar about its shape. One of the things I really enjoyed about the paintings was some of them are long distance views with the most incredible fine detail of the crops growing in the field leading up to the tree. Others have a very broad brush, now forgive my clumsiness, but a much softer, more impressionistic approach. Um, but other paintings are finely detailed and I really enjoyed those where you see the really tiny details of the twigs and the leaves. And um, as an arboriculturalist, all of those details are somehow inside my head from study and years of examining trees. But as an artist, you've explained to me how that wasn't exactly a surprise, but it was something really to be explored. And do you feel as an artist that one of your great missions is to open people's eyes to new ways of seeing a familiar object? Uh, yeah, that puts it very clearly. The assumption is for my kind of work, it's a tradition for this. It goes back to the, I suppose you could argue, the sort of middle of the 19th century, 
where the, those French paint, famous French painters, the best ones, the images they produced then were quite strange. People couldn't see them very easily. What they had was a very rigorous method, which let them, as it were, kind of peel off the familiarity of the natural world. And I think if you look at, you know, certainly Cezanne's hard to look at, but even a little corner of Pizarro um, uh, in, you know, when he was working with Cezanne or uh, you take a little corner of a Monet, even a very famous one that everybody likes and so It's actually quite strange. There's odd, you know, you could never guess it. The thing is, um, I think I like the idea of a painting that shows you nature and reminds you that you couldn't have guessed that. Certainly, I've, I've been to many art galleries in the past. And when you get really, really close to, say, a Cezanne, who's one of my favourite painters, and you've got a, a painting in your book, which is of the Cezanne style. It's a sort of close-up, and it's just a series of brushstrokes to the untrained eye. And then you step away, and it does give you um, a really fresh way of seeing it, and it gives it a real majesty and power and beauty and I love the fact that your work is really crosses the spectrum from the fine detail, almost photorealism, through to the impressionism. One of the things also that's absolutely beautiful about your work is that you visited the oak at different times of the day and at different times of the year. So not only do you have the seasonal changes but you have the change in light as well. And, and tell us about your extreme painting experiences of that oak tree. Okay, here's a couple. Um, it's very nice painting an oak tree on a sunny day um, when it's warm. And it's, it's actually quite nice in the snow as well, if it's not too windy, because as long as you've got the right clothes on and you know, you've got your whiskey and a little bit of hot, hot flask and so on. Um, but there's two that stand out. One was um, I went when there was a snowstorm on in the middle of the storm because um, I've always liked the idea of the air being a material thing. I mean, birds fly in it. They treat it like the sea. So when you get a certain kind of storm, you can sort of see the atmosphere. Well, you can in most storms. But anyway, this was a very heavy snowstorm. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll try and paint this. But I couldn't even walk across the field. The, the wind picked up. Um, and I was beaten back, so I thought that was quite extreme. <laughs> it, it is extreme, because when you get that easterly wind in East Anglia, it's harsh yeah. and very powerful. And it was an east wind, you're absolutely right, was coming from the tree, which uh, I'm looking east, that's correct. And um, anyway, I was beaten back and went home. But I went back the next day, and it was the low-grey sky and absolutely silent you know how silent it is after and um, there wasn't that much heavy snow in the three years that I painted the tree but this was the heaviest snowfall um, and I got a nice painting out of that the next day but there's an art extreme one trying to paint it without any lights at all okay it's quite difficult to explain if people don't paint but um if you're sitting outside at night and you've got your little board with you um in low moonlight or starlight, bright moonlight slightly different, but low moonlight or starlight or cloud, light, light cloud cover, there's not a lot, enough light coming off the board to see anything. I mean, you can see white, but that's not enough, okay? You can't see the greys that you can see when you look at the subject because the, the board is simply not as bright as the sky. So you can't contract all those colours and tones you can see on the night sky when your eyes adapted onto the board. It, the laws of physics won't let you do it. So I got a tiny, tiny little LED light 
and covered it with lots and lots of sellotape to make it even fainter and tied that on here. Um, and I just got that on the board and sort of took enough layers of tape off to get it so it was almost as so I, how I could see. And I painted on that. <laughs> how extraordinary. And in the um, area where you were painting that village, there isn't a lot of light pollution there. And I, and I know that. There is some from Colchester, just about. But in my misspent youth, um, when I should have been going to nightclubs and living at large, I actually spent my sixth form time walking with a group of friends regularly at night through West Burgold. And that was really cool. And so we used to walk. Um, I don't know what our parents thought we might be doing, but we were literally just walking in the moonlight or without the moonlight and and having that very rural nighttime experience. I'm talking about sort of 16 or 18. And um, there is something very special and it completely changes your perception of the landscape and how things look and feel. And I, I didn't have any fear of that. And obviously you didn't either, but um, there is a really special quietness. Yes, I completely agree. And you're in good company um, because Coleridge and Wordsworth did that too. Um, and, and made notes, I'm sure. Uh, there's, there was a whole group of people at that time, including scientists like Humphrey Davy, who went on night walks, you know, just, just when um, astro astronomy was growing, sort of Herschel's next generation onwards. But, and, and there were a lot of people interested in the night sky and Joseph Wright of Derby was interested in night scenes as well. And I was too, but I had a frightening experience painting at oh, night. Oh, right. What happened? This was in the winter and heavy cloud cover. So it was very dark, uh, but this time I had a proper little light ready. So I wasn't doing my extreme painting in the almost dark thing. And I was painting away, um, but the light must've been very focused and perhaps concealed um, because I heard hooves coming in the dark. Oh. And that's the only time in my life where I felt the hair on my neck stand up. And it really does. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. It hasn't happened before or since. Oh, yes, it's happened to me for different reasons, yeah. <laughs> and the light was low and I just left it there to see what would happen. And then I saw something come above the horizon and it was a stag. <gasps> How magical. So there was a stag coming towards me and so I shined the light on him and he, off he went. Uh, but So I saw a head come above the horizon oh. in, in the dark. <laughs> uh, that was you know that was quite something but most of your painting was not as extreme if we've just talked about in terms no, of your painting no. experience having seen the tree in so many different lights seasons and weather did you sometimes feel it was almost a different tree or did you always have the sense of its being itself yes what happened was that um when I arrived in the field, it felt familiar because there's my tree. I'm at a distance from it. Okay. But then the minute I sat down, if I, this is assuming there's been a gap of several weeks, not the next day necessarily. Um, but when I sat down, you got very attuned to small differences and it began to seem very different each time. So the way I described that to myself at the time is the tree's teaching me to see it. It felt as though I'd learnt to see it by being there. And again, I couldn't have predicted it. So, so for example, a little change of blue above the hedge from 
turquoise to a slightly more cobalt blue, say. Um, and the color of the hedge and the leaves at the edge changed. Okay, they shift slightly. The sun hits the tree in an August light. You see all the lammas leaves. So you get all these pink, pink leaves in the middle of summer. Yes, you do. It's absolutely beautiful. There's a fantastic mm. painting in here. Actually, I've just found it, um, which we'll have on our website. Yes, that's right. Exactly. There um, are lammas leaves on there. One. And they're very strange colours. And you would, I mean, I've heard the phrase lammas leaf, but never really looked at them. And of course, they're, they're kind of salmon pink. They are a salmon pink and they emerge. I mean, there is lammas day, isn't there, which I think is the 15th of July, traditionally. Yes, and so the oak pushes out some new leaves as a sort of reserve in case the others have been overly munched as they yes, emerge. Yes, that's spring. right. That's a, it's, it's it's like um, um, seconds. It's, yes. it's like another meal for it. It is. Isn't it, it is. Really? That's right. But, yeah. but you, I never. I didn't expect that. Um, and you know, one day I arrived, and there's this kind of pink haze inside the thing, and then that makes you notice other other reds and pinks perhaps in the ground and so on and so each time you arrive there's a kind of different um it's like a different chord is being struck it's, it's rather beautiful really um and you could go on forever i mean it was odd finishing because i did feel well you know i could stay here for the rest of my life actually um would it be wasted well at one level it would i think probably three years is enough i remember thinking at the end i used to travel quite a lot mostly Europe. But after being in this field, I lost the idea that I had to travel to see new things. Because you were seeing things truly and deeply right in front of you. Perhaps the oak did teach you in a way when we spend time with a living thing. Did you find that you learnt new painting techniques or new ways of expressing what you were seeing? The way I work is I try to adapt the technique to the subject a little bit. I mean, it's all wet on dry oil, most of it, um, unless I'm painting little studies on the spot when they're, they can be wet on wet, more or less. But um, I'm basically a wet on dry painter, so the one layer is dry underneath, so I'm going away, drying the thing, coming back. So it, it kind of accumulates, really. Um, so although there's a shared method, um, each subject has a slightly different set of priorities. So for example, if you're doing a skyscape, um, there are big sheets of very small changes going on. Um, and so you'll use your oil technique to maximize the impact of small changes. Whereas if you're looking at a kind of black and white silhouette, the drawing becomes very important and you're not worried so much about little delicate changes of tone. I mean, you are, but not in the same way. And, and so the way the paint goes on becomes slightly different. There's more, it's more linear. You're not losing such soft brushes. Um, you may be able to paint the thing quicker because it's just bang, 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 just two or three layers. Um, so what I would say to that is that the subject kind of pushes the technique in a direction each time. So, so, so you did. So it does help you find slightly new potentials. What the natural world does is because it is so complex and unpredictable. You, you're constantly having to. It, if you attend to it and don't assume, you know how it looks. If you really attend to it, it'll push your technique in a certain way. So, so again, the natural world, I think, 
give, gives your technique a directions. It shoves it around. But you have to look carefully and be open to that. If you just go out and say, oh, well, I know how to paint, bang, 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 you never get it. Yes, you're right. So I suppose as an amateur, if I thought I was going to paint the oak tree, I'd get out my green paint and I'd get out my brown paint. How silly is that? Because there's a multitude of colours that you wouldn't expect to see and techniques. And did you find that painting one tree over and over again, did you feel that you had some kind of affinity with that tree? Or was it merely as a professional artist observing one object, albeit a biological one that changes and shifts? Um, I wouldn't put it as that, that as the alternatives. I, I felt some affinity with the thing in the sense that um, I probably knew it better than anybody else, even its owner, or the people that shot, did a bit of you know, rough shooting in the area or anything, or, the, or, the, or, or Reg, who was the farmhand. Uh, but then Reg knew I knew the tree better than he did, so it's not really an issue. It's just that, um, so you feel, you feel familiar with it, but an affinity, no, because the more you understand, looked at it the stranger it was sting you can't feel affinity for an oak tree it belongs to a different kingdom well we're going to be interviewing james canton about the oak papers i know you know james the author and you've met and i'd be interested to hear his point of view on that i know that you're working on waterfalls at the moment in wales aren't you Yes, the same applies to a waterfall. It's the very it's the damn strange thing. You think you know what a waterfall looks like. Forget it. <laughs> Forget it. It's just chaos. We're living in an unprecedented time at the moment, even aside from COVID, in terms of climate change and people's consciousness of the natural world is probably the highest it's been for a really long time. Do you feel that with your talent and skill as an artist, you can convey a strong environmental message that might help people see the world in a new way or appreciate a lollipop tree at the end of the garden, which is in fact this highly visually complex tree? My answer to that would be along the lines of, um, if you stay indoors and you know watch the telly and go shopping and love your car and you know live a normal life and your family um that's fine and there are there are all sorts of riches but the urban environment the way i see it is the urban environment's already been seen that's been designed lots and lots of different people have seen that glass or this lamp or you know that that hairbrush or whatever so the the man-made world in a way, it's, it's been imagined for you, so you're not challenged by it. But the minute you go outside, your, your senses are challenged, okay? Uh, you can't look at your mobile phone walking through a forest. It isn't possible. In other words, you have to use your senses. And I think that the, what the natural world can do is it wakes up your senses, and, and that's the invigorating and kind of redemptive thing as much as anything else. And it gives you a sense of freedom that's separate from what you want to buy next and how much better your possessions are than the other guys and all the rest of it. It's out of that area of um, that's worth this, this is worth that, that's worth this, because you're in an area where everything is hard to see, you've just got to be alert and move through it, okay? And that alertness in a way, I think is what one of the things that makes us feel better. We're just kind of, um, it's like exercise, but for everything. 
It's, it's just good for you to be that alert. It's good for you. All of those senses, the sound of the leaves and twigs underneath your feet, you know, breathing the air and all the beneficial vapours from forests. I mean, it's a well-known practice, forest bathing. And, and interestingly, in a previous podcast, which is on mental health and nature, um, speaking to a renowned expert about the visual patterns that we see and how the visual patterns of nature are inherently relaxing and pleasing to us. Whereas the, the regimented patterns in an urban environment create some discord is not the word that she used, but they are not as restful. So there is something inherently relaxing about being in nature. And I think that's been shown by numerous academic studies. I'm just interested about the role of art. So in my mind, somebody picking up your book who may be the person you described who lived a normal life, an urban life, picking up this beautiful book, Oak, and seeing your paintings, I think you should really be proud of yourself because I think people will look at the book and it might help them see in a different way, not just with their eyes, and appreciate the complexity of nature. And I think that is one of the gifts that artists give to us. Well, we get our ideas from other artists as well. That's nice of you to say that. And I would hope it has that effect. I mean, during lockdown, I've had several emails from people. Well, you know, oak tree is supposed to be a symbol of England. And, it, and I take it as that as well. But actually, it's travelled all over the world. You know, what that was one of the things that surprised me. And um, about a month ago, I had a lovely email from a guy in upstate New York who's, you know, locked at home under lockdown. Um, he teaches art, but he got hold of the book and he just said it, what you said, really, that looking at the paintings helped him through lockdown, which I thought was rather surprising. And then I thought, well, you know, he is an artist and he's the pictures have given him a slightly different way to think about it. And, that, and that's what I get from other artists. So I'd agree with you. But I think the source is the natural world. It's not me. It's not the painters. If you have a good method that's relatively objective, capable of showing what's there, then what's there will help you out. To my way of thinking, it's to do with almost depersonalizing it and letting it, letting what's there um, become noticeable. So you're almost not overthinking it. You're just being and doing. And for those of us who like to dabble now and again, what tips can you give the budding landscape artists or nature artists? Maybe we're not going to be too worried about the end result. Go outdoors <laughs> and paint simple things to start with. Go for big things and big, big areas of colour and then put all the little things inside it. Don't start peering at one little thing and trying to make a perfect copy. Look at big things and try and get the effect. And then you can put the little things inside. That's the biggest tip I give to anybody starting painting. Big things first. Landscape painting in the past, it's been a fantastically popular and energetic pursuit. I mean, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, there must have been tens of thousands of landscape painters and hundreds of thousands of serious amateurs. And they overlap. It's not a sort of they're professional, they're amateur. It's an enormous continuum. And I would say that um, a lot of people that don't go to art school are still very, very interested in landscape. And the art schools have missed a trick because um, in my generation, observational painting 
was taught less and less and less. And in fact, now a lot of good amateur painters, so-called, are very good landscape painters, never been to art school at all. And if observational skills were taught a little bit more in art schools now, I think that would fit very well with the sort of growing interest in the natural world amongst younger people. Um, because you, you can do interesting things with photography and film, but there's nothing like sitting in front of the thing with paint to force you to attend and make something that's both personal and, you know, of what you see. So I, I would say that you know, if I were asked where landscape painting should go, it should go back into the art schools for a start. Right. I had no idea that it wasn't. It's not that it's been abandoned. It's that there's been 20 or 30, maybe 40 years of interest in conceptual arts, much of it's very, very useful art. But you can only teach so much in three years. And to teach good landscape technique, it takes several years just to get off the ground, to get good control. So I think that it would be nice if there were more observational painting, I like to call it, going on. Mm-hmm. There's plenty going on in night schools, um, but less in art schools. It might change. It possibly is already. Uh, but when I stopped teaching in art schools, um, the degrees in this country, you had to look quite hard to get good training in observational skill. And finally, what do you hope for the future for landscape painting and nature observation? Well, you know, the more people that um, look and paint and uh, take observation seriously, the better it'll be for the natural world because more people will become aware of it on the whole. But there's nothing compared to you know legislation to protect the countryside. That's the important thing. It depends on what you do with the land, how much you know, nature you've got. So in in the end, painting is quite a weak thing in 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 that that's in that sense. Politically, it's um, not very a powerful weapon. Thank you so much, Stephen, for your time. It's been so enjoyable. My pleasure. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Gabriel, thank you so much for taking part in this special Literature and Trees episode of Tree Lady Talks. That was a pleasure. You've got a fantastic career as well as being a writer. Could you tell us something about the the multitude of different things you do for silviculture? Well, I started off, um, I, I guess, like an accidental forester. Weirdly and sadly, I didn't have, no one really suggested forestry to me as a career at school. Um, but I've always had a love of trees. Um, like many, I think, in our profession, we've been somewhat connected to them at an early age. So I spent most of my life climbing trees and falling out of them on purpose, which is my weirdness. Um, if anybody had told me at the time that I could have uh, chosen a career in trees, I would have leapt at it. Um, so I kind of ended up doing a sort of slightly boring academic route into doing geography. That's what I did. Which is a great subject. And I went to university in Wales and Aberystwyth and fell in love with the Welsh mountains and um, was kind of inspired by the forestry and somewhat horrified at the same time by what was going on, and it really interested me. Um, and I um, came out of that with a, a degree in geography and just felt I wasn't really particularly well-versed in practical skills. And I really fell on my feet when I came to, or I saw an opportunity to join a small charity in Oxfordshire that was running a, 
particular course for fresh graduates that gave them uh, a wonderful range of experiences over a course of a year working in the physical environment. Then you had to drive tractors and dag sheep. Um, that sounds great. biological surveys. And then the third week you'd spend with young people doing outdoor education. It was the most amazing year of my life. It really set, set me up. Just, is that charity still going? Well, it is. It's called the Earth Trust now. It was the North Earth Trust. Um, it changed its name, uh, I don't know, about a decade ago. Um, so I, I did that year with them. And uh, this is relevant because it did shape my career, really, because the patrons of that, that charity, uh, Sir Martin Lady Wood, um, gave me my first job, really. So I finished that year. Um, and in a conversation with um, Sir Marty, he just said to me one day, we've got this field and we've got this idea of planting some trees on it. I'll give you a month's work, you know, do some thinking for us. And that turned into my first 16 years of career and basically helped develop what was effectively the first private sector research woodland, focusing on um, genetic improvement of hardwoods. So uh, oak and ash, cherry and birch, it's a forerunner of the, what became the Future Trees Trust now, which is out there doing great stuff with uh, field trials, with genetic improvement in mind. Um, and then because of realisation, actually, there were some great opportunities to research. And perhaps I had a modicum of skills that I could bring some additional research to the trust. They very generously sponsored me to do a um, PhD or DPhil at Oxford on walnut. So I got heavily into walnut, did a, a PhD um, on genetic improvement of walnut. I went romping around Kyrgyzstan and Central Asia and looking for um, super trees to grow back in seed back in back at Britain. Um, anyway, so that was my you know my early career, and the result was this woodland called Paradise Wood in Oxfordshire. And I headed off after that to work for BSBI, the Botanical Society of the British Isles, as their first development director, which is fascinating, working with a membership organisation. Um, and then, kind of strangely, um, kind of history repeated itself. I bumped into Martin again, and he sort of said, how are things in forestry? And I said, oh, they're not so good, really. You know, we're importing huge amounts of timber. It's our sixth biggest import. Our woodlands aren't being managed. The, uh, the policymakers don't be connected with the stakeholders. And he basically responded in a similar way by saying, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, you know, I'll set up a little job for you, see if you can do some thinking around it. Over the, over the course of a year, Martin and I came up with the idea for maybe a new charity that could do something quite unique. So that was, the, that was the, how the Silver Foundation came together as a new environmental charity. So that's what I'm still doing is running that uh, cheap zec. And our mission at Silver is to work with private sector, with woodland owners, um, the public good in that is that if we can help them bring their woodlands into good condition, we're going to be producing good, great timber, reducing our wood miles and exporting our footprint to other places, which we shouldn't be doing. Um, but obviously, you know, providing all that wonderful health and well-being benefits and uh, landscape and wildlife benefits back here at home. So that's the heart of the Silver Foundation's work. And also getting encouraging people to actually work with wood and work in forestry. That's so important and uh, that's going to be needed more than ever because there is a skill shortage, isn't there? Yeah, it is. And this is, I guess, what I describe as the affinity between the natural world and people. Um, and it's a classic thing that, you know, Richard Louvre identified in his, his phrase, which I, I, he told me he was a bit, um, wish he'd never coined it, but the nature deficit disorder. The idea that increasingly younger generations are disconnected from the natural world, even though we seem to have, you know, wonderful 
uh, Greta's of this world coming up and becoming amazing ambassadors for the natural world. Most people, and it's not just the young anymore, I mean, through our generations are pretty much disconnected from the realities of um, the natural world, let alone how we might manage it. And I think that leads to a whole range of issues around um, we don't always perhaps have the support we need to make change happen. I think that um, obviously lockdown did open people's eyes to what was outside their window and uh, they may have seen for the first time, you know, a tree in the street. Um, and we, we covered that in quite a lot of depth in our podcast, Mental Health and Nature, and looking at the evidence base for how it really, really helps us. But you're right that people don't have the tools or the confidence to actually go out and uh, think, well, can I walk here and, and how should I behave? That's so true. But as a deeper thing too, and that's, you know, we, we had a project, um, we called the One Oak Project at Silver. It's one of our first things we did. And we're 11 years old now, it's a charity. This was driven by, you know, on, a, on the thing we're discussing, it's driven on the idea that actually I, I was getting challenged and I was hearing other foresters getting challenged by people um, quite upset that you're felling trees and, you know, confused mm. or wondering, you know, how could it be sustainable when you're fending a tree that's beyond one human generation? Yes. How can that ever be sustainable so the whole notion of you know p- planting the multiple trees multiple generations and managing over say 80 to 120 years is a really difficult thing mm, to get ahead around mm. so just the one oak project the idea of um, using a single oak tree um, grown on a, a sort of iconic estate so Blenheim Palace step forward which is amazing and then we sort of fell, um, filmed it over a couple of years did lots of arts programs around it uh, felled it in a blizzard on a, in a freezing day in January um, and then over a course of the next two years working with school children and makers and everything else made 60 products from the tree so every part of the tree was turned into something uh, for fine chairs uh, a beam in the queen's diamond jubilee flotilla a boat um, to the sawdust that went to the manoir and Roman Blanc to smoke salmon oh. so and then we kind of made a big show and a, a touring um, exhibition from it took it to Edinburgh and London and so on um, so yeah, that was um, fun. But there's that whole idea of, you know, if, if you could just use one tree and all it gives us, not only product, but the story, the nature it's supported while it's alive, the fact you go back to the site and, and place the tree you felled, you plant another 80 or something, that's, it becomes then real and people say, oh, so that's I, how it I works. think people can relate to the idea of One Oak and, and actually... There are two other contributors to this podcast. We have Stephen Taylor, who painted One Oak over three years, over and over again, in in different times of day, in different conditions. And James Canton, in his book, The Oak Papers, is mostly focused on the Honeywood Oak in the Marks Hall Estate in Essex. And he has a real spiritual connection with that tree. But the project that you've with the one oak is all those multiple uses, those those high end uses of that one tree. It does capture people's imagination because it has some meaning rather than if you talk about a forest or or a group of trees, it doesn't connect so much in people's hearts. So I think that's really clever. Yeah, exactly right. But I'll tell you what's very interesting. I'd stand there at a little desk we had actually made out of the oak from the, the tree with a film showing the, the tree being felled. Um, and this is a slight aside, but the children, we had 200 children and about another 200 adults all watching it, Um, and it was freezing cold, so they were very cold and bored, and someone whipped them up into sort of cheering, and it turned into a bit of a chant, cut it down, Ah. cut it down, which is kind of really pulls on the heartstrings, and I had people quite angry saying, you know, why would you fell a beautiful mature oak tree? And then 
then if you explain what you're doing with it, you, you get somewhere. And then still people say, well, why use wood at all? And wouldn't it be better to use something else? And that whole argument of, you know, well, how much wood is in your life? So you look around you, you yourself, Shan, behind you, you know, a wooden desk and yeah. shelves and you've got windows and floors. And But people don't always think about that. No, they don't. And maybe it's better it comes from somewhere far away in another com- co- continent. I don't want to see it being found in my backyard. It's a really interesting yes. psychology to it. Well, we've not been brought up that way. Um, children haven't been educated in that way so much. And I think that is changing. And and the idea of using our own resources wisely and replanting with many, many more trees and the habitats that that create and the employment that creates. And, you know, the, the beauty of wood and working with wood itself is very therapeutic. So, no, we are we are educating the forest school system i hope is really going to help in that way as well yeah i think that's fantastic i'm so so enthusiastic about forest school it's so important absolutely and one of the things you just said there cut it down cut it down that brings me in the mind of um russell ball because you're also involved with fun for trees and one of the things that russell ball who's a tremendous character and power for good says to children let it grow, let it grow. So tell us a little bit about your work with Fund for Trees. Yes, I'm one of the, the original trustees uh, that we put together and it sort of came out as a, I guess, an urban uh, tree charity with a focus on um, a bit of research and strangely uh, also a focus on children in, in the city. So we, all because the trustees were actually quite keen cyclists, we also kind of combined everything into one thing. So we just used to go on cycle routes through mostly cities visiting schools taking trees with us in our panniers and planting a tree in the school grounds and moving on to the next school and it's great fun actually but also quite powerful and memorable for the children we've even cycled to paris actually to plant i know you did yeah yeah we've done all sorts of crazy stuff so there's a do have a look at funfortrees.org.uk. Yes, do have a look at that because they also have just one job as well for anybody who works in the industry can donate just one job. Yeah, that's, it's brilliant. As well as being a trustee for Fund for Trees and keeping those everybody in check, you're also, and the reason why we're speaking to you today is because you're an author and you have three books which are published. Yes. And we really want to talk about Tall Trees Short Stories which I read, I mean, I'm a prolific reader and I, I read this recently and I was enthralled because it has 30 short stories. And what really, really fascinated me was the diversity of the stories. So one of them is almost like a children's fairy tale. Some of them are a bit gothic. Some of them are very scientific. First of all, how did you start writing fiction? What inspired you to get involved with that? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. So I, um, not wishing to necessarily do a, a shameless plug for my first book. Um, my first book, it's connected to the Silver Foundation. Let's use that as an excuse for talking about it. Um, um, I, uh, the Silver Foundation took its name from John Evening, who wrote what's widely regarded as the first ever book on forestry. So inspired by... Um, Charles II needing more timber to build ships to beat the, the Dutch and so on. Uh, we, we wanted better managed woodlands and more and more trees in Britain. Um, we'd better be without gold and without timber, as Evelyn said. So he, that was the original silver. And I was aware that it not only inspired us as a charity in our name, but um, it, in 2014, it'd be the 350th anniversary since his silver. And I thought it was well overdue an update. And there had been a couple a long time ago um, I have to be 
on his person. I don't think they were particularly good. I mean, this is a long time ago, like 100 years ago or so. Um, and during his lifetime, he'd done several new editions. But I, I felt that the whole idea of reaching out to the landowners of all sorts um, was something that was probably well overdue. So uh, I went about, I pitched an idea, uh, the amazing co-author Sarah Simblet, who's an artist who's worked on various books, including Botany for the Artist, and pitched this idea that we could celebrate Evelyn's work with a bit of gravitas, um, and also just have these beautiful illustrations that brought the whole of forestry and trees and silviculture alive for more lay public. I suppose for me, that's my first jump from being a, an academic writer um, with uh, whatever I've got now, 90 or so papers published, to something more um, appealing to the general public. And I suppose I've been driven by a very clear awareness that you can write these academic papers that very few people read them. And then often they're really difficult for people to access. So I've been torn by that in terms of this is good information that needs to be read, but it's difficult for the lay person to access it. Um, that's what the New Silver is about, was trying to bring forestry in its more technical way. It's quite a technical book in some ways, but made beautiful by Sarah's work. Uh, so bringing forestry to the mass public, that's what I wanted to do. So that's for me, was a leap away from academic writing to something it, it was still a little bit serious, but it was nonetheless trying to be a bit more poetic. And, but the same sort of theory applied for me is that I wanted to find a way to communicate even more to the masses. And um, I'm not pretending for a minute I've written a bestseller in my fiction books, but it was an attempt to, to use fiction to um, reach out to that audience even more. So it's back to how we started this conversation about this affinity and uh, connection with nature. So if I could use fiction in a way to really open people's ideas to maybe some of the science, but in a quirky way. That was what I was trying to do. So my next book after The New Silver was a, a book celebrating the work of a, um, a plant hunter, a Victorian plant hunter, a true story of a, a, a young 23-year-old who basically walked all the way across North America and spent four years collecting um, tree seed and sending it back to Edinburgh before disappearing off the face of the earth. Um, so we have his... Um, sort of tree collection record but he was supposed to keep a journal I never did so it's a bit of a mystery so what I did was combine his very accurate record of what he collected where so we knew where he got to with an imagined um, journal entry sort of per day and that's called Green Gold and that came out a couple of years ago so that's my first um, sort of foray into fiction and then this idea of short stories was a, a very wide array of genres which I thought would be fun. It was so surprising because I've, I've never read such a diverse style of short stories about essentially the same subject one way or the other which is trees and I, I actually think it's brilliant and it really really carries you through and it's very compelling as well because it's often written in the first person. Tell me a bit about how do you find the time to write and what is your process for writing? My first thing, if anyone ever says that to me, quite, quite a few people do, uh, I just say, well, just go for it. You just, just start. It's the starting that's the difficult bit. And there are things that can help. I think as you're asking about where I write and when and set yourself a discipline, you need a, a dedicated space, makes a big difference. Having said that, I wrote The New Silver when I had my children were quite young and I was in cafes and outside ballet schools and, you know, waiting in the car for a football match to end or whatever it might have been on my laptop. So it wasn't the best 
environment. Um, now they've grown up a bit. Um, I've got myself a little cupboard under the stairs and I have some noise cancelling headphones and, <laughs> and that's my world. But I tend to get up early before work. My mind is fresh and often you sort of wake up with a, a, a ding moment in your head and think, oh, yeah, that's the, that's the thing I've been missing and just get up, make a cup of tea and get to it for a couple of hours and that's all you need. It's strange, you know, the thing I've really learned is about the practice. You get so much better with practices like playing the piano, which I don't do enough. Um, the more you practice, the better you get and it's the same with writing. So going back to Tree short stories, I've really loved the opening story where you see through the eyes of different creatures getting smaller and smaller in the tree. Could you just, just give us an overview of that one, please? Yeah, so it's called Eye to Eye. And it's the idea of, uh, well, it starts off with a, uh, a keen birder who's in a tatty old hide on a heath, staring into, uh, the, into the, um, the dark, well, the, 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 the lightning dawn anyway, with a, a brand new fancy optic. So he's very excited about his new telescope. And he just suddenly couldn't believe that his eye falls upon, um, uh, in this wonderful big scope of his, a huge set of eyes from an eagle owl. And an eagle owl is often, you know, obviously not a common bird you see in Britain. So he's absolutely over the moon and can't wait to tell his, his birding friends about this amazing new thing. But something strange happened. And as he stares into the, the gl- glowing orbs of his eagle owl, he feels his heart and soul being sort of drawn deeper and deeper into the telescope and out beyond. And before you know it, he's, he or the, at least the readers then dragged through um, one creature after another, like a reverse food chain. So it goes from a Eurasian eagle owl to a, a pine martin that the eagle owl eats. And then the pine martin uh, eats a goshawk. Um, and the goshawk eats a, sh- a woodchap shrike, and the shrike eats a mouse, and the mouse eats a ladybird. The ladybird eats a fly agaric mushroom. And the mushroom feeds on a silver birch. Um, and that's the sort of, the, that's the idea. And it comes out, he sort of, comes out this weird sort of um, feels like it's gone down a sort of diminishing tunnel, like a sort of Alice in Wonderland sort of feeling. But it also, I mean, it is so powerful, but it just gets a simple message across as well, doesn't it? As well as being a very powerful story and un- said in an unusual way. I adored that. And, and a lot of the stories are quite scientific as well. The story of the Young's PhD student going to Transylvania it's a very gothic one and meeting a science, scientific lady. For those um, who haven't read the story, um, the young scientist is going to explore a forest and doing a line transect of looking at various data. I won't say too much about it, but um, it's almost like a Bermuda Triangle within a forest, isn't it? And there's these stories of people disappearing. And- I was inspired by this, this sort of idea that there's, in Transylvania there's supposed to be a particular place where the trees grow in weird directions. And it, some people say it's a UFO landing site and other people see you never see any bird or insect flying across it. So I thought this sort of the idea was that this student who comes from France, um, a lepidopterologist, so um, interested in moths. So she's out there at night, which makes it spooky and with a friend and... And things happen, put that way. It's um, very, very gripping. And as a sort of foil to that, there's one which is like a, almost like a sort of fairy tale. Uh, the Woodcutter's Axe. I love that one as well. It's almost like a bit of light relief as well. Well, I'm glad you picked that up. Yes, yeah, so I wanted to write something that maybe would appeal to, you could read out to children. Um, and there's a bit of music in it, because I've got a kind of musical background. I used to be a chorister and things, so I, I like a bit of music. So I wrote a bit of... Um, a bit of music for that and wrote a song. 
After hearty breakfast, Billy and Bess were soon on their way, but not before the farmer had thanked him more times than Billy could remember and given him two loaves of bread, a whole round of cheese and some lamb chops. Billy couldn't remember feeling so happy before and he became aware that he was whistling a little ditty. Bess's ears were twitching, listening to him, her feet clopping in perfect timing to the jaunty tune. Once he realised that he'd composed a new tune, Billy decided he would call it The Woodcutter's Whistle. As they rode along together, the words for four verses formed easily in his mind. I am a humble woodsman, a woodcutter I am. I cut as much wood as my little arms would, a woodcutter I am. I am a master woodsman, a woodcutter I am. I could cut wood to make you something good, a woodcutter I am. I am a champion woodsman, a woodcutter I am. None can fell a tree like a fellow like me, a woodcutter I am. I am King William's woodsman, a woodcutter I am. I love the wood for the trees and the trees for the wood, a woodcutter I am. The last verse made him smile inside, and not just because he had to sing the words really quickly in the third line. Imagine working for King William. He had the largest forests with the tallest trees in all the land. It was told that he also had a very beautiful but tragically sad daughter, Princess Flora, who was infamous for having never smiled in all her 18 years. The best doctors in the land had poked and even prodded her, given her exercises, prescribed herbal medicines, even sent her to a tickling class, all without success. That was wonderful. Thank you. There's another story in there. Dr. Locum and Professor Otiv. That's right. And I really like the bits where um, she's doing quite well. She's quite nervous. But she, the, the the nasty professor says, well, you talk about, you have three ideas that you've presented here, but there's a fourth. You refer to a fourth. That's a fundamental basic mistake. And um, she said, well, actually, I was worried about showing you that one. And then she shows them her laptop their mouths fall open. Could you just describe what you had in mind? What did she discover? Yeah, so they're sitting in this um, austere Oxford room. She's feeling very nervous sitting there in a black gown, as you have to still in Oxford, and, you're, and you have your viva, which is how you're examined at the end of your, your defil. Impressive, very impressive, commented Dr. Locum. A fundamental requirement of a doctoral thesis is that it must make an original contribution to knowledge. Yes, I think this is very impressive. And quite right that you have submitted it to the International Science Journal of Nature. Well, that may indeed be laudable, Miss Berry, but let's return again to this inconsistency in your conclusions. Did you mean to refer to a fourth approach, or was that a lazy error? Perhaps you tested another area, but because it didn't work out, you decided to remove it from your thesis. Is that it? You realise, young lady, that it is important for advancements of science that failures are recorded in equal measure to successes. As only that way, yes, yes, there was a fourth area in my work, Eleanor blunted, blurted. There, she'd said it, and now there was no going back. Please continue, Professor Otiv wore a smug smile. Dr. Locum looked shocked, and rightly so. As internal examiner, he should have known about this. Eleanor feared that she may now have lost his trust, and as a result, his support. This was not how she'd seen the vibe going. Damn it, the professor was right in saying it was a stupid error, but he had no idea about the truth, nor the scale of it. The chapel clock chimed 12. Soon her fellow students would be filing back into the college for lunch. The interview had already taken longer than she'd realised. 
Miss Berry, please continue. Eleanor refocused. I decided it was too contentious and perhaps too applied. What do you mean? The ultimate solution to the problem which trees face in being long-lived and immobile. Would you stop talking in riddles, Miss Berry? I was successful in bonding living wood with bioscaffold made from nanocellulose, thereby permitting a tree to be supported by an endoskeleton and successfully enjoining this with an exoskeleton. If the external packages could contain carbon, perhaps they could also store the water and gases required by the tree, creating a life support system in cases where, um, for instance, the tree might be without those directly virus roots. By that I mean being able to survive in an alien world, deprived of the means to complete respiration and photosynthesis. The nearest analogy will be an astronaut's breathing apparatus and propulsion system. Wait a minute, interrupted Otiv. I understand where you're going with the life support system concept, but what do you mean propulsion system? Do you mean self-propulsion as in independently mobile? Yes. Ha, shouted the elderly professor. You're trying to convince me that you managed to engineer a biorobotic solution to enable a tree to move across the landscape? I, I really think we should give the candidate the time to defend her work and under conducive conditions, started Dr. Locum. Sod that. Come on, Miss Berry. I demand to see evidence of this fantastical suggestion. Eleanor felt cornered. As she opened her laptop, she spoke quietly. If man has brought unprecedented rates of a changing climate upon the natural world, then I think we owe nature every effort to help it adapt. I, I ask myself, how could trees move themselves 250 metres north every year? So I set about designing a solution. She pressed play on the video and turned her laptop round to face her two examiners. As the sound of the first earth-shaking step vibrated through the laptop's tin speakers, she studied their stunned faces as their jaws dropped. And that's the end of that story, and I so wanted it to continue. And it, it sort of does a little bit in Bionic, doesn't it? Yeah, I, it's the thing about short stories. I mean, I think I hadn't really thought about it before I wrote it. The marketing side is really tricky because they are so diverse. It's very hard to pick a story that captures the essence of all the other stories because they are so different. And I also know from speaking to people, you know, since um, it's come out, I've had some lovely feedback. Uh, short stories aren't for everybody. So sometimes people quite rightly, you know, really get into a story and wish it would keep going and would rather have you know, found out more what maybe happened next than, than jump into another story in a different genre. Um, but other people like that style. So you can't please everybody, I guess. But the thing you say is, is there consistently through. Obviously, the, the tree is a star, if you like. Um, but the same character might pop up in a slightly different guise in another story. So, I really like the man who harvested trees because I felt that there was a link with the, the girl in Bionic. I know it's not the same character, but I like to imagine that that student went on to do the amazing work that the lady scientist does in The Man Who Harvested Trees, who was inspired by an elderly forester when she was growing up and went on to, to do the science that we can only dream of. And it really got me thinking that we've got so much ahead of us. We've got to solve the climate change situation We've got to feed the world. We've got to make sure that we live in a more sustainable way. And I know your book is a work of fiction, but it did get me thinking about the possibilities in the future. 
and perhaps you might like to explain about the the sort of bioengineering that this character does in The Man Who Harvested Trees. Yeah, I'm really pleased you picked up on that sort of similar, similar, similarity in the character. Um, it's, it's great how people see things that you might think are hidden, so that's really nice. Uh, yeah, this particular story is, was, I was inspired by, you know, a wonderful story. If you've, you're not aware of it, then, you, you know, do look it up. It's um, uh, Jean Giono's 1954 book, The Man Who Planted Trees. Um, and I, I wanted to kind of write a sequel to that. So it's The Man Who Harvested Trees in this case. Uh, I'm really keen to have strong female characters for various reasons in the book. And this is another case where actually, although it's called The Man Who Harvested Trees, it's all about uh, the life of a young girl growing up into a woman, becoming a bioengineer by um, by profession, and ending up sort of um, becoming a major factor in this huge new forest that's created in France um, after a massive sort of global mi- migration because of climate change. But finding these, as you're alluding to, sort of uh, bioengineering solutions to what was what we might face in maybe 50 years' time. Um, and it ends up with her kind of reflecting on maybe the trees that she planted as a very young girl at the start of the story, being felled with her full sort of not only permission but joy. And the fact that the person felling the tree was actually her granddaughter too. So I think that's that's the kind of how stuff came together really. The other thing I really um, was quite chilling in that story, which, you know, you think, oh, I hope I hope it isn't a vision of the future. But obviously with people migrating, we've already had the first climate change migrants, you know, moving from flooded islands, etc. But you really pick up on that theme. And, and you also talk about the great food famine of Europe in the future as well, brought about by climate change. And that's quite chilling. But the other thing I really like about that story, because I'm a romantic, is that she has a good first marriage and, and he dies in that first food famine, doesn't he, in the wars for yes, food. Yes, he does, yeah. And then she meets again a young man that she met in the forest as a teenager and, and they go on and live very happily in the forest. That's just me being a romantic, but oh, I'm really glad you really that you've read this, haven't you? Oh, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm I have, amazed. I have. No, I really, it, I really you know, have read it. It's the most, most wonderful privilege to to meet people who've read your book you, you, there's nothing more um wonderful actually particularly people who've read it and understood the deeper stuff so it's thank you for that well Sharon. honestly it's an absolute joy now Gabe, we're going to read from the story we've just been discussing the man who harvested trees and gifted life yeah this is the epilogue so it's right at the end of the story set in the future and it features the main the main character who's now um, an elderly lady I'm 118 years old, you know, young man. You must allow me a little time to catch my breath. No problem, Professor, replied the journalist. If it wasn't for my bioscaffold heart, I wouldn't be here at all, she chuckled. Call me a loner, please. Okay, loner. I'll set the scene first, then introduce you, he said, preening his shirt collar and uh, jacket lapel. He looked again at the woman before him. Despite her considerable age, she possessed a remarkable spirit and a fearsome life force shone from her eyes. She lived through a tumultuous century and would have some amazing stories to, to share. He was going to enjoy this interview. And please don't worry, this is a recorded interview rather than a live stream. Are we ready? <clears throat> he cleared his throat, more from habit than necessity. Good morning and thanks for joining us. I'm Silas Rackham, reporting today from the Bouffier Memorial Centre in southeastern France. A celebration is shortly to begin, marking the 200th anniversary 
of the creation in 1910 of the Great Haute Provence Forest by Elziard Bouffier. The humble shelter, his home when he planted its first trees, were converted, converted in 2052 to the visitor's center behind me. It now attracts tens of thousands of pilgrims every year. I'm joined by a woman who has dedicated her long life to this forest. Following a highly successful scientific career in cellulosics, she invested her personal fortune in a wide range of cultural initiatives and health programs centered on the forest. Her second husband, Dara, himself a descendant of the forest's creator, spent the best part of his career as a practicing forester here, leading the third silvicultural revival. He was a driving force behind the creation of this memorial center more than 50 years ago. I'm delighted to speak with you, Professor Bouffier. Can you tell me a little more about the trees we're surrounded by here? Of course, I'm too young to have known Elziad Bouffier myself, but many of his trees still stand today, like these 200-year oaks and Douglas firs. Other stands of trees have been felled and replanted up to three times since then. I believe you knew his apprentice, Sylvan, very well. He was a relative? Yes, like his mentor, my great uncle planted trees right across the forest. Some of them were felled for their timber many decades ago, while others are now 160 years old. I came here as a young girl, so the trees I planted are more than a century old, and you can see them there on the other side of the center. I understand it was the impact of these trees on your own life which inspired you to lobby successfully for the Bouffier Act, for every school child to plant one tree for every year that they're in education, Yes, that's right. In fact, it's my single proudest achievement. I can understand why. So what's your earliest memory of the forest? My first impression of the forest is a sad one. I remember getting terribly upset when a great oak tree was to be felled. The reporter looked genuinely surprised. With what I know about you, I find that very hard to believe. Tell us a little more. It would take a little time, Alona smiled. Come with me, we'll sit together under this oak tree I planted all those years ago. The two started to walk towards the giant tree that stood proudly on the far side of the glade. Do you know, my granddaughter's going to fell it later today. It's a very special day for me. She's head forester here now, and I'm very proud of her. That's wonderful. A really, really wonderful. So do you have um, another book on the go that you're writing? Foolishly, I do. So I really love writing the short stories. And actually, I was aware that um, I've got a, a blog that I've been writing now for 10 years about trees and my photography and so on. Um, and I've loved the interaction and support I've had from readers. So I decided to do set myself a challenge, a bit like we were chatting earlier about you know regular writing. I thought, well, why don't I see if I can write a short story a month for the year and give them away. So I've, I've had this short story giveaway on my website and there's two months left. Um, if you sign up to my newsletter, you get a free book every month. That's the gist of it, a free short story. Tell us the website. Yes, it's my my own main website. So it's gabrielhemery.com. So G-A-B-R-I-E-L-H-E-M-E-R-Y.com. There you go, listeners. So you can sign up there to, to the my, my sort of e-news, and then which I don't send out terribly often, so you don't get spammed. <laughs> and then you get a, a free short story. So effectively, I've got a collection of actually slightly more than 12 stories. So I've got another volume of this in mind, um, which I'm nearly there, which I think actually are better than these. So I'm 
quite excited by the next volume. So that's my next work of fiction. And I've come up with the most stupid uh, idea yet, which is really ambitious, but very exciting for me. And that's to see if I can create a guide to all the copses, woods and forests of Britain. So this is going to be a, it's not going to be a complete gazetteer, but it, the idea would be, I'd like to bring together all the big NGOs and others that own woodlands and sort of promote their forests, um, but also get land um, woodland owners, private woodland owners to put their, um, put, uh, to nominate their own woodlands if they want to. Um, they can do it either anonymously um, or they can say, yes, I'm a proud owner, here's my name. And I'm asking people just to tell them, tell me everything about the woodland that they're proud of and its history and so on. So there's a website for that, which is copswoodforest.com. Well, that's all one word, copswoodforest. Uh, and people can either nominate a woodland near them that would like to be included, or if they're actually the owner or an agent, they can actually provide the actual details and agree for it to be included directly into the book. So I'm just at the moment um, hoping to attract a major, major publisher to supporting me in that endeavour. So that'd be my next non-fiction work. And I thought it would work really nicely with the new silver, which is all around, you know, obviously the history and individual trees. This would be very much more focused on the owners and the woodlands of Britain. For my count, I think there's 98,000 woodlands with a, some sort of designation on OS mapping in Britain. So there's no way I'm going to reach 98,000. <laughs> but if I even reach a few thousand, I think that'd be, that'd be great. But what, what's inspiring me is I don't want to have another book just celebrating the obvious, you know, Major Oak and Sherwood and the Forest of Dean. It's the, all the other woodlands that are so wonderful near everybody that maybe we could just share and celebrate more. That is incredible. Wow. Such a, you have such a great, diverse mind full of ideas. It's, it's an absolute privilege to interview you. Gabriel, Tell us, do you think that literature has a power to change how people might think about the natural world? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's critically important, isn't it? When they say forestry is a combination of science and art, and I think if we're ever to convey the complex messages that we need to, like the, you know, our sustainability in the future of the world, without art to bring it to life, whether it's film, uh, painting or literature, whatever, I think it's so important because science itself is too dry and inaccessible very often to the general public. That's, that's what I think inspires me to write. I think you're right. People need to hear stories to get into their heart. So it's absolutely wonderful to speak to you. And I really recommend Tall Trees Short Stories and any literature really that gets people thinking about the environment as well. And, and check out Gabriel's blog and your other projects as well, all of which will be linked on our website. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sharon. Thanks for your interest. It's been lovely talking to you. And you too. Bye. Bye. Okay, take care. Bye. So now we're going to go over to Prague and we're going to speak to... Irina Antonis or Irene Antonis. <laughs> I found out about you on Twitter because you have the most beautiful website. But before we go on to that, tell us about yourself. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I was really glad to find you too. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really glad that I can connect with people who are passionate about the same things that I am. So I'm from Russia, but I've been like traveling for the last 10 years um, because uh, besides uh, 
my uh, profession as a designer and an artist. I'm also a musician, so I I was traveling and singing around Europe and Asia and got this beautiful experience, also painted some artworks around the world and in volunteer projects. Uh, it was a cool time, but then I decided to continue with my master's in future design. And that's how I um, found the Prague College. Prague College is a part of uh, Teesside University, which is English uh, university. And uh, I have just uh, recently graduated uh, from Future Design Masters. And as part of that, you produce Humanum Lignum. Humanum Lignum, uh, which is uh, translated, um, to make it simpler, <laughs> um, as a human tree. Um, yeah, that was my um, final year project. And yeah, I started this as, um, as a project for my masters, but then it became a very personal thing which I feel like I need to spread the word um, about uh, this project and I think it must it it will be very useful for like educational platforms museums schools and I hope to reach <laughs> this um, this uh, people schools and uh, universities out First of all, we're going to have a link to your website on our website, which is sharonhosgoodassociates.co.uk. You draw three parallels between trees and the human body. Exactly. So exactly. tell us about the connections you make on how a tree is biologically to how people are biologically. Yeah, it's fascinating how similar we are uh, and um, many of us. They, we just miss it on a daily basis. We do not realize how many things uh, we have in common with, uh, with plants. And uh, in my case, uh, I'm researching the trees. Um, so I found like million similar things, you know, like similar senses, social life, communication, like they even have like families, of course, in their way, but if you really read about that, uh, you understand that we have very similar ways. And I, um, after researching all this, and um, after reading also the book by Peter Bocheben. Oh, that's such a great book. This. Yes, The Secret Life of Trees. You make the connections between tree roots and the brain. I found three main similarities. So it's roots and brain. Um, then skin and bark and blood circulation and water transportation. I, I chose them because they are all based on micro-macro aspect approach. And that shows like my idea um, in a more profound way. Uh, because for example, let's take um, roots uh, of the tree and brain of the human. I would uh, start showing uh, the neurons so I would show the micro level how it, how neurons of our brain are similar to the tips of the roots of the tree. Yes. And then I would go big and I would show uh, that actually brain is the equivalent of uh, um, roots because they control uh, the whole body. 
and they they decide on everything what's gonna happen <laughs> with with uh, the human body or or with the, the tree trunk and the, they send electrical impulses in the same love. way. And I feel capable of doing anything I wanna go Yeah, made me blue And we was playing all the strings of the song Oh, we can make me happy in every single way And it's killing me But it goes away So how do you how do you put your music together? Do you do you play it all yourself? Do you compose it yourself? Yeah, I play acoustic, so I use my just my guitar, and my voice, and uh, of course, to for my work, I play a lot of covers. But I have my music and what 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 sort of style is the music that you put to to what you're going what you're actually uh, playing in front of? I would say it's pop rock, like mix. My music is not exactly about trees. <laughs> Life goes too fast sometimes, but I can't find a place to be. And I'm listening to my own lines, though I can call it a fantasy. You it does help me to to reach people um, with my ideas because as an artist I draw a lot of stuff from nature like mushrooms and microorganisms. I look at them under microscope and then I draw them and then I make animations out of these and then I would do my concerts, I would play my music and I would have these animations on the background and I would um, reach people with this idea, you know, through music and nice atmosphere, but also I would show the importance of these beautiful things because um, no one actually sees the lichens, the mosses that are growing on the trees. They're so, they're so I thought small. I knew about the light, now all of them turned upside down and with I thought I had behind my back is something I will never find. Do you think that young children will be quite imaginative about the fact that they are similar to trees in a very, very simple way, in the way that they're in the way the trees are put together, in the way that their body is put together? So if you said to them, you're made up like this and the tree is made up like this, I would have thought a child would have would have gone, whoa, that's brilliant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it must be easier but to teach at that level. I actually think it's a good idea to have a kind of this program for schools because we need to educate people first, like we are angry about what's happening with the world, but most of it comes, uh, of course, because we don't have the right education and we really don't know anything. And uh, if, if you show it to little children, uh, then they'll realize it, it will be printed in their head already. And it has to be made in very uh, simple way. And it was one of my goals, uh, not to make it long, not to make it boring. One of the ideas in this project is that if, if we show that we are so similar and uh, child or any person watch it then you basically understand that 
nowadays you're killing yourself. So we're not talking about something, something separate. If I am like a tree, then I am killing myself. We're connected with nature and what we do to nature affects us. And you show that in the most beautiful, simplistic way. So thank you very much, Irina. Thank you for reaching out. Find out relaxing. I just love hearing people read a story. It stems back from childhood and I used to read to my kids as well and I loved it more than they did, I think, doing all the funny voices. Oh, I was joining in. <laughs> I was joining in, I tell you, but honestly, it was it was great. And then to have that mixed in with, with Stephen's paintings and to be able to see some of those on a computer screen whilst you're listening to him on the podcast, I mean, that's fantastic. So anybody with two screens out there, make the most of it. It's, it's a great experience. I really encourage people to look at all of their websites because they're absolutely fascinating. There's so much more to them. But I think there's a really, really important message here. We all know about climate change and what's happening in the world in terms of biodiversity loss. And writing and painting and any art form is another way of sharing our appreciation of nature and and reaching those who wouldn't necessarily study it. So um, I hope that's been of interest to people today. And of course, next week we go from the comfy chair to the sharp end. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I've had a really great conversation with Pete Wharton from Wharton Natural Infrastructure Consultants about the, the joys uh, of- Not Pete Waterman. No, Pete Wharton. Did I, did I say Pete Waterman? No, if you said Pete Waterman, that would have been a tenuous link from my point of view, but I can't go into that now. No, just leave us hanging in there. Okay, <laughs> that'll be for Christmas. But um, yeah, so, so Pete and I had a great chat about the joys and difficulties of starting up an environmental consultancy and, and what it feels like, really. So that was a great chat. And, I'm afraid I rather reminisced about some of my past as well in that. So that's next Friday, and, and thanks, Pete, for that. From the tree lady, Sharon Durden-Hollenby, good night. <laughs> and from Noel, it's good night from him. 